Amen. And while they're heading out, the rest of us, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 11 this morning once again. Matthew 11, for our guest, we are studying the book of Matthew, and we're in a section that encompasses chapters 10 through 13, that, uh, excuse me, chapters 11 through 13, that is all about the theme of this section is the conviction of the disciple. Matthew is a is kind of a handbook for discipleship. That's the way it's written. And uh, it's all about, this section is talking about who is Christ and how do we faithfully and rightfully respond to him in salvation and what does that look like? And so we have seen in the first couple of chapters, first few verses, the questioning of John the Baptist and uh, how to deal with doubt We saw that uh, who are we looking for whenever we come to Christ? What is it that we're actually looking for when we come to Christ? And and now as we are coming into verses 16 through 30 of chapter 11, we're really looking at Christ as the Lord of all wisdom. The beginning of all wisdom, the beginning of all knowledge is to fear the Lord and to keep his commands. In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with what is the chief end of man. It is to to love, to glorify God, and enjoy him forever. That's That's one of the reasons I always pray that the Lord will have his greatest glory, which is always and forever our greatest good. And so his glory is always our good. It is a lie from Satan to say, that pursuing his glory will result in our unhappiness. Uh, It's a very effective lie, but it is a lie nonetheless. And so so let's go ahead and uh, and read. We're not gonna read verse 16 through 30. We're just gonna finish up through verses 25 through 30 this morning. And uh, I would invite you just to stay seated since we were just standing. And, uh, and we'll, I'll read aloud as you follow along in your copy of the Word. By the way, if you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 970 uh, is where we are, 970. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You may uh, have heard before it's an old fable. I don't know exactly what country it comes from. I think it might be from China or, or one of these far eastern countries of uh, the four or five blind men who are trying to discover truth, trying to discover God. And they are, they are trying to discover what an elephant is. And so you have four or five blind men who are, who are feeling the elephant at different spots on, their, on its body. And, and you have the one blind man who feels his tail. And he says, truth is like a snake. And then you have another blind man who, who is feeling his leg, and he says, no, truth is like a tree. And then you have another blind man who's pushing up against his side, and he says, no, truth is like a, a wall. You know, that, that kind of idea, that kind of uncertainty, that, that kind of religious pluralism was made popular in America by a theologian named John Hick. And he was a renowned and infamous, I would say, uh, universalist who believed that all, all religions go to the same place or trying to achieve the same thing. And, and he would often use that fable in order to uh, try to prove his point. And, and man, it, it sounds good. It sounds great. It, it appeals to human wisdom. It appeals to human uh, mentalities wanting to be 
the master and ruler of our own fate and the master of our own eternity. And if you're someone who wants truth to be like a tree, then that's great for you. And if you're someone who wants truth to be like a wall, then that's great for you. If you're someone, one of those odd people who want truth to be like a snake, there's just no hope for you. That's just weird. So, <laughs> but that's even in Christian circles today, this is becoming popular. This is becoming, the idea is that, that really uncertainty, un, not knowing, uh, they'll, they'll say things that if you are someone who believes that your faith is certain, that it is solid, that it is something that you know, then that is not genuinely faith. They'll say that true faith, genuine faith, is being uncertain, and true faith is in the doubting, and true faith is in uh, the questioning and all these things. They, they refer to this today as deconstruction. If you've seen the second American gospel film, they actually talk about this and, and how it's damaging the Christian mindset and, and how so many people in our churches today are holding to things like this. They'll say that faith, true faith, is uncertainty. Now, that sounds all mystical and that sounds mysterious and deep and, and all that stuff. The truth is, I have no idea what they're talking about. And since, according to them, they don't either, so I guess it doesn't matter. But if we are going to be a church that, that genuinely strives to, what, what do we say? What are our three pillars of ministry? We want every person who walks through our doors to become a part of our covenant family. We want you to have three foundations in your life. We want you to do what? Know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith, right? And if we are going to be people who do that in the glory of God to the, to the expansion of his kingdom, then we are people who need to be certain we must be people of conviction. We must be people who know, who know the truth, and who know how to share it and how to live it. And it's not enough just to know who Christ is. We saw that in the beginnings of chapter 11. It's not enough though just to know what Christ, who Christ is and what he has done, but we must also have a conviction on how to rightly respond to him. And what is true wisdom? What is that fear of the Lord that we are looking for? This morning, beloved, is that we will be comforted and assured of our relationship with Christ. We need people who know. We need to know that we are in the faith. John wrote his gospel in order that you may know. Beloved, doubt and uncertainty is not comfort. Certainty and assurance is comfort. And when you're in the throes of temptation, when you're in the throes of life's hardship, when life goes sideways, I told a bunch of teenagers at prom last night, my daughter and her friends, I told them that if you find yourself in a situation that you cannot handle, well, I want you to have a blast. But if you find yourself in a situation that you cannot handle, here is my phone number, call me, I will get you home safe, no questions asked. And when you find yourself in a situation, you need to know that you have safety. You need to know that you have comfort. And that's what our text is all about this morning. These are amazing verses, profound in their implications, astounding in their theology. This is probably some of the richest theology that, that Matthew gives in his gospel. And it shows some of the core truths of our beliefs and our faith. We saw in verses 16 through 24, the depths of our depravity, that, that we are like children who when, the, when they play flutes, we refuse to dance. And when they play a dirge, we refuse to mourn. And even though, the, uh, even though the correct response to Christ should be so obvious in our depravity, we refuse to respond faithfully. No one left to themselves seek after God. All have turned aside. All have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. And so we see the depth of that depravity in verses 16 through 24, and it was, and it was negative. 
But this week, we see God's amazing grace. That's why we sang so much about it this morning. God's amazing grace and his wonderful, gracious, and loving invitation to all who will receive, to all who will come. And so, beloved, this morning, as we saw last week, Christ is still commanding us to hear his invitation to his kingdom. He's commanding us. He is the Lord of all wisdom, <laughs> commanding us. And the, and the center of wisdom is that we hear his invitation to the kingdom. We talked a little bit last week about what it means to hear what all is involved with that. But what is involved, essentially, we see through verses 16 through 30, that there are four essential components to a right response in Christ. We saw last week, I won't go over these, but first we must realize our condition, that we are like stubborn children, lost in our sin, refusing to come. We must repent of our indifference. We saw that in verses 20 through 24. And this morning, we're gonna see that we must rely on grace alone in verses 25 and 27, and we must rest in Christ alone in verses 28 through 30. So are you ready? Here we go. So in verse 20, we see, uh, 25, excuse me, we see that we must, if we're gonna respond to Christ as we have recognized our fallen condition, our depravity, we've confessed our sins, we've humbled ourselves, we've repented of our indifference, and now we see that we must rely upon grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. And so Jesus praises the Father in verses 25. We have a, we have a recorded prayer here that, that some people argue that Jesus must have walked off and prayed this to himself. I don't think he's doing that. I think that he is standing in the midst of the crowd teaching these things and saying these things. And, and in the midst of this, just like Paul so often in, in his great teaching, it prompts him to prayer. He's just so overwhelmed by what he sees and the depravity of man and what he sees and all of these things. He's so overwhelmed that Lord, even though I could look at all of these things, I could look at the world, and Father, I could see I could so easily lose my confidence. I could so easily fall into fear and despair, but Lord, I thank you that you are in control and that God's mission of grace is not failing in the world, no matter how it looks, no matter how bad it looks. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you see his sovereignty there that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, or your translation may say intelligent. You've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to little children. So the first question we have to ask is, who are the wise and intelligent? You know, some people, they look at a verse like this and they say, you know, all of you guys that have, you know, uh, that have so many books, you like to read, you like to do all these things, you, you're, you know, if you go to college, it's a threat to your faith. Or if you go to this or some professor's gonna attack you or, or something like that. And so they, use, they look at verses like this to try to prove that but, that. but that's not really what Jesus is doing here. That's not, in fact, that's, in fact, you can find ample, ample revelation about the value of pursuing God's truth and knowledge and so we're not, we're not saying that. That's not what Christ is doing here. But look at who is the wise and intelligent, who is the wise and understanding in context. If you look before, we saw last week that he's talking about three cities, right? Chorazin, he's talking about Bethsaida, and he's talking about Capernaum. All of these cities where the majority of his miracles have come. The majority of his miracles were done, and yet they refused. Miracles that are so powerful, that are so mighty, that if they had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. If they had been performed in Sodom, Sodom today would still be on the map. We probably wouldn't even have a dead sea if they, if they had been done back then. Miracles that were so, uh, so undeniable that even the worst of sinners should understand them, and yet these cities that had firsthand exposure to them 
in their stiff-necked rebellion refused to respond. They were hard of heart. They were closed off. So they were wise and intelligent. They were well, they were well versed in the synagogue. They were, they knew the traditions. They all of those things. But we also see following in the context in Matthew 12, where Christ is going to run into several controversies, all of them revolving the religious leaders. Things that, you know, talking about the Sabbath. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Is it okay to uh, pick grain if you're hungry on the Sabbath? Is it okay to, uh, they're, they're gonna look at Christ and look at his miracles and they're gonna say, those things are coming from Beelzebul. Those things are coming from Satan. They're, they're, they're wise in their understanding and, and they cannot understand the simple truth that human wisdom and human achievement will never earn you salvation in Christ. They are, we're talking about religious pride here. We're talking about the pride that comes. They had laws, they had customs, they had traditions, all of which were handed down to them. And so many traditions of the day, for, for example, you had the populist group, you had, you had the Pharisees, they were popular with the people. You had the rich and affluent. You had the, you had the Sadducees that ran the temple and, and pretty much controlled the affluence of the nation. You had the compromisers like the Herodians and the Hellenists. You had the patriots, the zealots who wanted the kingdom of God to come by violence. And then, of course, you had the communal people. You had the Essenes, all of whom were claiming that their wisdom is the way to bring the kingdom of God back to Israel. And Jesus says, thank you, Father, you did not reveal these things to any of them. You didn't reveal to a religious party. You didn't reveal these things to a political party. They all had their own ideas of wisdom and intelligence. Paul, coming from those very traditions of the Pharisees, here's what he would say in Romans 1, 22. In their depravity, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools because they missed the gospel. They missed the kingdom. God did not reveal his kingdom to any of these. Instead, Christ says that they were hidden and revealed to little children, infants even. Again, we're not talking about age versus no age. We're not talking about intelligence versus ignorance. We're not talking about uh, all of those things. We're talking about religious pride versus humility. Because if there's one thing we know about an infant, we know what? They are totally dependent, completely dependent. An infant can do nothing for themselves. They know that they need the help and all they can do is cry out for someone to give them what they need. And Jesus says that I have hidden, Father, thank you that you've hidden these things from all the wise and intelligent, those who are trusting in human achievement. You've hidden it from them and you've given it to those who recognize that they are totally dependent upon your grace. Just like babes, some of your translations say. Just like the issue is not any of the things that we might want to read into the text. But instead, wise and understanding are those who think they can bring about their own salvation through their own achievements. And they are the very ones that the gospel becomes hidden from. Oh, sinner, beware that you are not trying to achieve salvation on your own, lest the gospel be hidden from you. Oh, sinner, don't take that risk. Understand that you are completely dependent, totally on the grace and kindness of our God from eternity past to eternity future. It is grace alone and there is nothing else that brings us to Christ. 
Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 17. I love this verse and had to shorten it because it was a little too long but for the board. But the preacher says, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Notice, he can't find it out if he would. He will not find it out if he could. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God reveals his kingdom to those who are humble. Those who are humble. And how does he reveal it? Look in verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. Stop right there. How does God reveal the kingdom? He does it through a person, God incarnate, God the son, Jesus Christ. That is how he reveals. This is profound. This text is absolutely profound in its implications. And, and I'm gonna tell you, it's easy to understand, but it can be a little difficult to accept because we are talking about things that are beyond our ability, beyond our logic. We are talking about things that began in eternity past that we cannot even understand. I don't get eternity past, do you? I don't understand that. I can't think in those terms. You know, when I was a kid, I thought it was just empty space. There was no space. There was only God existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't understand that. So I don't dare to venture to try to understand what happened in the will of God in eternity past. But look what he says. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son. I want you to understand the profundity of what he's saying here, that the only way, that the only one who can fully know God in his full essence is God himself. So that you and I, we can know God because he reveals but even then we cannot know God in his fullness because he is infinite and we are finite. And for Jesus to say that no one knows the father except the son is essentially saying that he is God. And that if you want to know the father, you must know Jesus. You must know Christ. And that is the only way. Jesus says uh, to Thomas when he asked him, oh, Jesus, just, just show us the Father. And Jesus in John 14 says that, have you been with me for so long? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To know the Father is to know the Son, and there is no other way. Let's go back to that elephant at the beginning. All the blind men feeling around on the elephant trying to tell what the elephant is like. You know, the one thing they miss is the elephant's mouth. And what if with that mouth, the elephant turned over and said, hey, fellas, blind guys, here is who I am. But that just throws all of the snakes, and thank goodness, that just throws all of the of the trees and all of the walls. That just throws it all out of the water, doesn't it? Because the elephant himself says, hey guys, this is what I'm like. And God himself in Christ recorded to us by inspiration in scripture says, this is God. To know God is to know Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no name, other name under heaven by which men may be saved because there is no other person who knows the Father and can bring us to him perfectly. And how does he do that? He does that by grace. Look at this last phrase, and I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. This is challenging. Look what he says. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We're getting into the doctrine of election there. And I understand that is a controversial topic, but we cannot 
we cannot change what Christ says here. And when, and when the scriptures teach election, we must teach it. And when the scriptures teach responsibility on our part to respond, we must teach it, which by the way, we're going to in just a second because they're side by side. You don't have to, you don't have to reconcile good friends. That's what Spurgeon said about sovereignty and free will. You don't have to reconcile good friends. And so, but we can't deny what he says here. That, Christ, that he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a clear statement that God in Christ has revealed to us the kingdom chosen in eternity past and has enabled us to respond. He has given us the gospel. And I want you to notice that Christ does not justify that. He doesn't feel like he has to defend that. He doesn't feel like that he has to explain that. In fact, here's what he says. He, he, he really offers no explanation whatsoever except in verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And that's all we know. That's all we know. And so how can we respond? The only way we can, look how Christ responds. Go, go back to the very first of 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 Matthew 25, does he say, Lord, why have you done it this way? Lord, why have you, why have you done it? Why have you chosen this way as opposed to that way? Why didn't I go to Tyre and Sidon? Why didn't I go to Sodom? Why didn't I go to all these other places? Lord, why are you doing it this way instead of that way? Will the thing that is made say to the maker, why have you made me this way? Will the pot say, to the potter, how dare you make me this way? But no, Christ responds the only way that you and I can respond. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Beloved, listen, I want you to understand. I don't fully understand the doctrine of election. I don't try to. But I thank God for it. I don't know how election works. I don't know the mystery of God's will here, but I do know this. I will worship him forever because of it. And that's the response. Don't try to figure it out. Relish in the mystery. Relish that we serve a God that we can't figure out because beloved, a God that you can figure out is a God you've made up. A God that you can fully explain a God that you can know fully and you can explain with feeble attempts of human logic and reason and philosophy is a God that you have designed is probably some idealistic version of yourself. And so don't do that. Don't try to figure it out. It can't be any other way because he who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory. If it's about my response, if it's about what I do, if, it's, if I'm walking in heaven saying, I made the right decision, I did the right thing, then who gets the glory there? I do. But if I say I am here for no other reason than grace alone and Christ alone, then who gets the glory? To the glory of God alone. That's what it's about. Can't be any other way. But this doesn't mean, this is not fatalism. This doesn't mean that there's no responsibility in our part. In fact, we see that God's sovereign election and our responsibility is right here side by side. Because as we see that we must rely on grace alone, we're also gonna see that we must rest in Christ alone. And just as faithful as we must be to the doctrine of election, we must also be faithful to the call to you to respond to the gospel. And you must respond by resting in Christ. Look at verses 29 through 30. 28 through 30, I'm sorry. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's significant here that Christ 
promises to give you rest because as we're gonna see in Matthew 12 and the first couple of controversies we see, it's gonna be all about the Sabbath. You know what the word Sabbath means? Shavat, you know what it means? Rest. And the question is, is do we achieve rest in God by following the, the rituals and the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance? I almost did it again this morning in Sunday school. I said pomp and circumcision. Don't, that's, although, although technically that does apply when we're talking about Jews, but you know, uh, but, but do we know? Okay, I lost my place. Um, do we... Do we, how do we come to rest? Do we come to it through all of these rituals and ceremonies and, and empty things? Or do we come to rest in Christ? That's the, that's the idea. And this theme is gonna carry out all the way through Matthew 12 as we move on. The religious leaders are going to accuse him of breaking all the rules of rest. That sounds great, doesn't it? Rules of rest. Boy, I don't know about you, but on my day off, the, Latin, the, the first thing I think of is what rules do I need to follow today? No, I wanna break all the rules. I wanna turn my phone off. I don't, you can call me anytime. But I wanna turn my phone off. I want, to, I want to watch whatever I want on TV. I don't want to have to fight over the remote. I don't want to, I, I don't want to do all those things. I don't wanna obey the rules, I wanna rest, Right? And yet those who are heavy, who are heavy laden, those who labor, the religious leaders had made rest so compound and complex that the days of rest were actually more, were harder on the people than just going to work. All the regulations they had to follow, there was no rest in that. In fact, Matthew 23, verse four uh, says, he's talking about those, the religious leaders. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay on them, uh, they lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. So all of these burdens, uh, Christ is telling them, all of you who are tired of running in place on the treadmill of the law, those who are tired of running in a spinning wheel like a gerbil or a hamster in a cage. Those who are tired of over and over and over again trying to turn a new leaf that does not want to stay turned over. You've tried a thousand times by putting standards, by putting things in place that you think will help you, only that those very things are the very things that turn to condemn you when you fail once again. Or you succeed and you become wise and intelligent, full of religious pride. Whatever the case, if you're tired, and heavy laden, you are shackled and burdened by the weight of your sin. You're so tired of trying to be enough. You're so tired of trying to be good enough. Jesus says to you, come to me and I will give you true rest. I will give you true rest. Not the religious rest of the Pharisees and the temple and the ceremonies and the, but I will give you rest. True Sabbath is found in Christ alone. And we rest in him. So you say, come to me. What, is, what does that mean? We talk about all the time, come to Jesus. You know, we sang that beautiful song, come Come to Jesus and rest in him. But, but what does it look like? What, how, do we, how do we practically do that? How do we practically come to Jesus? What, what is involved with that? Let's look in verse 29. He says two things here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. What does that mean? Uh, how many of you guys know what a yoke is? I'm not talking about center of an egg. How many of you guys know what a yoke is? Uh, you're, yeah, you've been in Sunday school before. You've probably heard this, but, uh, but a yoke is, uh, is, this, is this large wooden cross beam 
that what you would do is you would place it on the back of an animal, sometimes one, sometimes two, depending on the design, and, and you would use that to hook up the cow to the plowing machine or whatever it is you had behind it. In fact, if you look at pictures of third world farming, they, they still do this. You can still see actual yokes being used. But as people in the ancient days, as they would, as they would conquer kingdoms and they would take slaves, what they would do is they would, they would actually make slaves wear yokes and, and it was on their back and they would carry these giant wooden cross beams on their back as, as they would have to pull the machines and they would have to do terrible labor in the fields and, and stuff like that. And, and the yoke became a symbol of submission or subjection or ownership that you are the property of someone else. It became, a, it became a symbol of slavery. That's why Paul says in, in, uh, in Galatians, why would you take on the yoke of slavery again? It, it became associated as a, a symbol of oppression and subjection and submission. And yet Christ says, take my yoke upon you. Beloved, the idea here is that he is inviting you to submit to him as Lord, to acknowledge him as your owner, to become his slave. It would amaze you how much salvation language is actually slave terminology. In fact, we said the word election uh, earlier. That, that's a term from the slave market. It was used whenever a master would go in and he would choose out a new slave that he wanted to purchase. And when he purchased him, he would, guess what? Redeem him. We've, we've been redeemed, not with silver, not with gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are his slaves. His slaves that he has adopted as his sons and daughters and brought us to his table that we may banquet with him. And he says, take my yoke upon you, become my servant, let me be your Lord. Acknowledge that Christ is the Lord of all. In other words, repent of whatever self-efforts you're attempting to and submit to him. Repent submitting to him as your new Lord and Savior and King. Stop trying to wear the crown on your own head and instead take that crown off and acknowledge the crown of Christ and acknowledge that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then what does he say? As you do this, take your yoke upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What are we learning from him? Well, you don't have to look very far. Go back to verse 27. Who reveals the Father? Christ does. How can we know the Father? By knowing Christ. How can we know the love of God? How can we know the acceptance and, and mercy of our God? How can we know him? By knowing Christ. We learn from Christ. No one knows the Father except the Son. So come to the Son and learn from Him that you may know the Father, that you may know God. If you wanna know God, come to know Christ. You wanna know God better? Know Christ more. It's all about Christ. It's all about Him to his glory, to the glory of the Father. And you will learn who Christ is. What is Christ like? What does he say? We take his yoke upon us. What's that like? Christ is gentle and he is lowly in heart. In fact, if you're a guest this morning, we want to give you a gift. There's a book back there called Gentle and Lowly. We want you to take it. It is free. It is for you. And it is based on this verse that Christ is gentle and lowly. He is gentle and humble. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that Christ effaces himself. No, he can't deny who he is. But you know what it does mean? It does mean that in his work to redeem you, he is selfless. He didn't consider equality with God a thing that he had to grasp, that he had to hold on to, but he emptied himself and took on the form of, of a servant and became obedient to the Father, even to death, even to death on a cross. 
That is our God. That is our God. That he came and lived the righteousness that you and I can never earn. He earned it in our place. And then he died on the cross for our sins so that his righteousness can be placed on us and our sin can be placed on him. What in the world, oh wise and intelligent in this room, what in the world are you gonna add to that? What can you do that is better than that? What are you gonna add? What more do you need to be convinced that God loves you, that he is seeking you? We were studying the woman at the well in Sunday school this morning, and she asked this question that where, where do you say we worship in Jerusalem? We say you worship at Gerizim. And, and so many people try to say that she's starting a debate there. I don't think she is. I think she's asking an honest question. Sir, where can I find God? And Jesus says, I who am talking to you, I am. You know what that means? God found you. God found you. Gentle and lowly in heart, beloved, Christ is not a hard taskmaster. He's not a tyrannical despot. He is a gentle and selfless savior who will give you rest for your souls. And if you want true rest, come to him. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. I think I have this. It says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That's the yoke. But watch this. His commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Will you come and rest in Christ? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four. Amazing book that is comparing, telling us that Christ is a better Joshua. He offers a better rest. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priest. He is a better temple. He is a better sacrifice. He's a better everything. And in chapter four, Christ is a better Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, there would be no need for God to say later on in the Psalms that if you'll enter his rest today, he wouldn't have needed to do that if Joshua had given them rest. And so notice what he says in verse nine. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I know it's popular to say that all 10 commandments are repeated in the New Testament except one. And the Sabbath law, actually, no, beloved, the Sabbath is repeated in the New Testament too. It's right here. Christ is our Sabbath. Rest in him. Take his yoke upon you. Surrender to him as your Lord and learn from him who God is. Learn of his grace. Submit to him as your Lord and Savior and he will give rest for your souls. Aren't you tired of running in a spinning hamster wheel? Aren't you tired of continually running on the treadmill of the law, be it God's law or be it some other law that you've set up for yourself? You failed a thousand times and you say this time will be different even though you know in your heart of hearts it won't be. It won't be. Aren't you tired of that? Beloved, circus hoops are for animals. Jumping through hoops are for circus animals. Stop jumping through the hoops of trying to make your own righteousness or salvation. Come to Jesus and rest in him.
Beloved, as a church, we need to have conviction there. We need to, we need to know that that is the gospel. And we need to offer it far and wide. We need to preach the gospel to every creature. We need to preach the gospel to everyone who comes in this room. We need to preach the gospel to every person we have a chance to outside these walls. We need to be people of the gospel because that is the message that will save our souls. That is the message that will redeem our community. And that is the message that will expand God's true kingdom. It will not be some political party. It will not be some religious group. It will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look, I would ask you, have you realized your condition? Have you repented of your indifference? Are you relying on grace alone? And are you resting in Christ alone? Have you responded to the gospel? So many today are saying that faith, true faith, is doubt. True faith is uncertainty. Oh, beloved, the scriptures tell me in 1 John 5, 13, that by this we know that we abide in him. You can have assurance. You can know. And that is the comfort that Christ will give to your soul. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I would love to talk with you. I would love to have a conversation with you. If you don't wanna come to the front in a moment, that's okay. We have godly men. We have godly women, ladies, if you're more comfortable going uh, to one of our ladies. There's not a single person in this room who would love to skip lunch so that you can know the gospel. Amen? A little quiet than I would have preferred, but that's okay. <laughs> we would love for nothing more than to spend and be spent so that you can have heaven so that you can have Christ living within you. If you will repent of your sins and turn to Christ as your savior, maybe he's, maybe he's calling you this morning. Maybe you've heard something that is, that is making your mind going. You're starting to think about this. You're starting, to, you're starting to understand the gospel for the first time. That is what we call conviction. That is what we call uh, illumination. That, that is God shining his truth in your heart so that you, he is enabling you to respond. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. And if you feel, if you feel the gospel breaking through, respond, beloved, so that you can know him. Oh, sinner, don't play games with your life. Come to Christ today before it's too late. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your incredible truth that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that these verses, I know they're hard to understand in some ways. They're beyond our finiteness. They exist in your mind from eternity past. They, they show your wisdom. Lord, all we can do is say with Paul, oh, the greatness and the glory of the wisdom of God, who can know you? Paul also says that through the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. And maybe there's someone here this morning that you are in your goodness giving that mind to. They are understanding the gospel for the first time. Maybe it's something they said. Maybe it's something that they heard or we sang that they are looking at these truths and coming to understand this is something I need to do. Father, may you draw them to yourself today. May they not even enjoy their meal until they get this right. Lord, we ask you to save this morning. We ask you to be strong in our weakness and show yourself strong for those who are so tired of running have been beaten down by shame, have been beaten down by defeat, by habits they can't quit, by sin they cannot overcome. And even this morning, maybe 
the enemy of their souls is telling them they're not good enough. Maybe even this morning they are fighting it, saying that there's no way that God could be this loving. Lord, assure them that you are and that you, Christ, came from heaven to earth, died a sinner's death, took on your own wrath of yourself, and then rose from the grave three days later to prove once and for all that yes, this is our God. And that you are ready to save them. I don't care where they were last night. I don't care where they were this morning. I don't care what they've done. Lord, you've brought them here. And we want them to know that you are a God who saves and that the gospel is just as powerful today as it was when Jesus was on the earth. Lord, may you show off this morning. Let's bow, let's stand. And I'm gonna ask you if you're here this morning, we, don't, we lost our piano player, so Mark's got some music playing. We're just gonna ask you to reflect on what has been said. I know some of you may have questions and that's okay. But this morning, I just want to invite you to praise the Lord for his goodness. Thank the Lord for his mercy. Don't try to figure out the mystery. Just relish in it and worship him forever because of it. And if you're here this morning and God is calling you, I invite you to come. I would love to talk to you. Maybe you want to wait till after service. That's okay too. If you're a lady, maybe you'll be more comfortable speaking with one of our ladies. We have many godly ladies in this church. They would love to talk to you. I would just invite you to just be still and know that he is God. God.